Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. This is our text, but we will come to it later in the sermon. This is our third time to look at the matter of fear. The most repeated commandment and the command in the scriptures is, do not be afraid. And this command has special significance, I would say, for us, because we live in a culture of fear. I don't know if you've noticed it since we began this series, how much fear pervades our culture in in so many different ways. But to review quickly, in the first sermon, we begin by looking at the roots of fear in our culture. And first of all, there are the biblical roots, obviously the biblical story, the political history, and the cultural roots of fear. And I just want to touch on the biblical roots and the cultural roots by way of review. Fear appears in the world, and it's told in the story of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. They were put in the Garden of Eden to learn how to trust God and how to obey God. When confronted with a test, they chose not to trust God, and they disobeyed. And as a result, we find them, and it makes sense as they are our ancestors, they were human creatures who were unwilling to be creatures. They wanted to be more than what they were. They were humans who were declaring themselves to be self-created. God created them to live in community, as we find in the Trinity. We are made in the image of God. But the first two humans and their descendants ever since are not content to be creatures, that is, to have someone over them, a creator, and in a sense they would be derived from the creator. They want to be the creator. The fact that to be a creature brings with it great privilege as well as task was not acceptable to them. Instead, they were tempted and they gave in to the temptation of the serpent. You will be like God. As I said, this is a world away from being made in the image of God. Being made in the image of God means we reflect the beauty and the goodness of God. Becoming like God means that we become the source of beauty and goodness. This is a task that we were not created for, and as a result, we become afraid. And we see this in Adam, that when he hears the voice of God, he hides himself because he is afraid. Fear is the natural result of trying to be something other than the creature that God made us to be. As I've mentioned through this series, Scott Bader Say's book on fear has been a a tremendous help to me. He says it was when the first humans sought to be self-creators that they knew fear. It's when we try to be the creator That's when fear comes into our lives. And then with regard to the cultural roots. In our culture, because of where we are, it is sort of assumed that we no longer share a common story. And so how do we create a sense of unity? We do that through fear. Fear becomes the story that we share. In the absence of any other shared story or goods or goals, um, 
We don't have a common political theory, a political story to bind us together. And so fear is what sort of keeps us from unraveling with regard to the outside world, but also with regard to the inside world, that is within our country. Modernity gave us the notion that, like the serpent told Eve, we could be self-creators. We could remake ourselves. And in fact, much of our culture is geared toward remaking oneself, if not in terms of reputation or vocation, even physically, one can remake oneself. But we find again that we are not sufficient for this task. And as one writer put it, without history, we become unscripted, anxious stutterers in our actions as in our words. And so we live in a world that is governed, or not governed, but certainly we see nihilism as being the driving force in much of what is in our culture. Last week, we looked at the fact that most people, when they think of fear, they think of it either as an emotion, a feeling, I feel afraid, or they see it as an intellectual matter. Um, And that we see mostly in literature, which is interesting because literature, even though it can govern or can direct your emotions, is something that you take in through the mind. When we hear the command, do not be afraid, That seems like that that could be more of an intellectual thing, that through my mind I can, in a sense, control my fear, if fear is an intellectual or mental matter. When it comes to the emotions, that seems less likely, because your feelings are your feelings, and how are you supposed to control your feelings? But as followers of Jesus, we are part of a tradition that speaks of character formation that involves the proper ordering of our emotions and our passions. It is not enough to say, well, that's the way I feel, that's my feeling, and and so that's just the way it is. As followers of Jesus, we are to be those who properly order our emotions. What we find in the scripture is that our passions are not just given, but they are to be formed, they are to be shaped. And so we can be shaped to feel the passions that we feel in the right way, at the right time, and to the right extent. Please keep that in mind, because I will argue that it is appropriate at times to feel fear, but at the right time, in the right way, and to the right extent. So people say it's an emotional issue or it's an intellectual issue. I suggested a third alternative, that in fact fear is a moral issue. It shapes the kind of people we become. The kind of people we become has to do with how we view the world around us. When it comes to the matter of ethics, we usually think ethics deals with right and wrong. What is good or what is the good? But instead, I argue that we should begin with what's going on around us. Because it is only when we have a sense of what is happening in the world around us that we can then begin to talk about what is right, what is good, or what is wrong. To live the way we should, we need to recognize that God is involved in human history that God has a purpose and God has a plan. But if we do not accept that, if we do not believe that in fact God is working in our lives and in the lives of every human being on this planet, in human history, what is our response to be? What is it that gives us a direction? 
What if, in fact, the world is only marked by randomness, chaos, and threat? Well, when we answer the question, what is going on in the world around us, we would say we are in danger. There's danger everywhere. And therefore, safety becomes our new God. It becomes our idol. It becomes a thing that gives us a sense of purpose. Self-preservation is what drives us. And our sense of what is moral becomes very, very narrow because it's only tied to our safety. Fear tempts us to make safety and self-preservation our highest goals. And so our moral focus then becomes about the protection of our lives and our health. So as I mentioned last week, when it comes to, let's say, the morality of sexual ethics, it is no longer what is right or what is wrong in terms of what God says, in terms of commandments, but rather what is safe and what is unsafe. And that is what makes us, or that's what gives us a sense of moral purpose. This is the moral thing to do. You must practice safe sex. That is moral. If you were to say, well, fornication is immoral, people would say, well, you're being judgmental. But it is the fear of disease or unwanted pregnancies that drives the new morality and then causes people to embrace the idea of safety, uh, even in sexual matters. Security becomes the new idol. All other things must bow before that. As I mentioned last week, if if things get dicey, the government, if they want to sort of squash something, they say, well, it's a matter of national security. And everything has to be quiet in the face of national security. As a result, we begin to think our new virtues become suspicion, preemption, and accumulation. And these replace hospitality, peacemaking, and generosity. Safety becomes the thing that binds us all. That's the one thing we as Americans can agree on. We want to be safe from harm, from the terrorists, from disease, from uh, pandemics, whatever. We want to be safe. I mentioned suspicion, preemption, and accumulation. This is what informs so much of our culture today. To use but one example, I would argue that we now have a new golden rule. The golden rule used to be do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I would say the new formula is do unto others before they do unto you. You That's preemption. Make sure that you're safe, and to be safe, you must do it to others before they can do it to you. So, as I mentioned last week at the end of the sermon, one might conclude, okay, Jesus said, do not be afraid. We find it throughout scripture. I will be fearless. That is the answer. Fearlessness is the answer. But the answer is not fearlessness. You see, fear is not evil. It is not a vice. It is not wrong to fear, as we will see. But excessive fear or disordered fear can tempt us to vices such as cowardice, sloth, rage, or violence. But more than that, fear can inhibit virtues so that we are afraid to show hospitality. We are afraid to be peacemakers because we might end up being destroyed and so we need to do it to them before they get a chance to do it to us. And fear can lead us to be close-fisted rather than generous in helping those in need. Because if I help those in need, they might come back again and again and again. We choose to be closed fisted 
Well, why is fearlessness not the answer? Fearlessness sounds like a good answer to the problem of fear. Well, I hope to demonstrate in this sermon why it is not. Thomas Aquinas argued that we can become fearless through one of three ways. None of them is good. The first is through a lack of love. That is, we love, we love nothing enough to fear its loss. We're not afraid of losing it because we don't love it that much and therefore we will be fearless. We will not be afraid of losing that thing or that person. The second is to be fearless through a dullness of understanding, to use his words. That is, we don't recognize that there is danger or there is a threat, and therefore we are fearless. There's something that might be ready to fall on my head and crush me, but if I don't know about it, then I can be fearless. The third option is to be fearless through pride of soul. That is, refusing to believe that I am susceptible to loss. Scott Bader Say puts it in contemporary terms, it is the security of detachment, the bliss of ignorance, ignorance is bliss, as they say, and the pursuit of invulnerability. I would suggest to you that fearlessness is not a virtue. It is, in fact, a vice. We fear evil because it threatens the things that we love, family, friends, community peace, and life itself. Thus, the only way to avoid fear is to love less or not at all. You see, if we love nothing, then we have nothing to fear. If we lose it, it, it's no big deal. But stop and think a minute. Is that a good thing? As followers of Jesus, should we say, well, I, I don't want to fear and therefore I'm, not, I'm going to love less or I'm going to love not at all. So, we must begin to see that there is in fact a connection between fear and love. Contrary to those who see them as opposites, fear is the shadow side of love. Aquinas went as far as to say that fear is born of love. So our response to living in a dangerous world should not be an attempt at fearlessness, but an attempt to fear in the right way, at the right time, and to the right extent. Love and fear are to walk hand in hand. There's no way to eradicate one without losing the other. If you think about it, if fear is born of love, it can serve to awaken us to loves that we have neglected or taken for granted. When we see the possibility of losing something and fear is provoked, then we realize, well, this thing is actually important to me. This is something, this is someone that I love, and therefore I fear the loss of that thing or that person. If you think about it, we love much about our world, and yet our power to preserve what is in our world is very limited. It is the nature of our world to change. So life includes both growth and decay, birth and death, victory and defeat. We are so limited, but being limited is a part of what it means to be a creature, to live in a created world. To be limited, to be mortal, is not evil, is not wrong. It is, in fact, the shadow side of creation, as one theologian put it. 
These, limitation and mortality, are shadows cast when the light of God's goodness shines on a fragile, futile world. Because of our fragileness, the limitation that we feel, the mortality that we're quite aware of, these come as a result of God's grace shining in our world. And if you think about it, if our world is always changing and we are called to love, then this points to inevitable loss. The larger we love, the larger the shadow. The larger the shadow, the larger the fear. And while some fear is normal and natural, we must take care not to allow the shadow of loss to diminish our ability to love. That it would diminish our ability to enjoy what is here and what is now. What is dangerous and destructive is not fear, but excessive fear. Augustine, in his autobiography called The Confessions, writes about the pain that he experienced when a dear friend of his died. And he wrote, Black grief closed over my heart, and wherever I looked, I saw only death. Everything I had shared with my friend turned into hideous anguish without him. My eyes sought him everywhere, but he was missing. I hated all things because they held him not and could no more say to me, Look, here he comes. And so Augustine writes that he faced the temptation Okay, I'm not going to love anybody anymore. Because when you love someone and you lose someone, that's just far too painful. And so, as he put it, every love contains the seeds of fresh sorrows. Every time you love someone, there is the potential of losing that person and sorrow as a result. So what is the answer? Augustine went on to write, Turn us toward yourself, O God. For wheresoever a human soul turns, it can but cling to what brings sorrow, unless it turns to you. Cling, though it may, to beautiful things outside of you and outside itself. You were those beautiful things, yet those beautiful things, uh, let me start over, yet were these beautiful things not from you, none of them would be at all. They arise and sink. and they're rising, they begin to exist and grow toward their perfection. But once they grow old and perish. He came to see that it is the nature of the world for change to always be there. There is transience. Only God does not change. And so in the midst of change, we are to be grateful Because love and loss are natural, so is fear. To love is, as I said, to plant seeds of sorrow. This recognition, along with the recognition of limitation, can produce lament, deep sorrow, black sorrow, as Augustine put it. But it can also produce gratitude. If fear is born of love, then fear can also awaken us to loves that we have taken for granted overlooked or forgotten. It can be that when our loves are the most threatened, that we see them most clearly. 
Fear alerts us to our loves in a very powerful way. When we are faced with the loss or the possibility of loss, our loves come into a new focus, one would hope. So the one thing we do not have to fear is fear itself. Because fear, in fact, does oftentimes serve the good of life and love. In scripture, we read of the fear of the Lord. It is presented as a gift, as the beginning of wisdom, and as a gift of the Spirit. So if you look in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, that fear is a gift of the Spirit. But this idea, this phrase, the fear of the Lord, is widely misunderstood and rarely seen as something that is a gift. The idea that we are to have the fear of the Lord is, in the words of one Old Testament scholar, one of the most offensive things in the Old Testament. I think part of the reason for this is that appeals to the fear of God have been used to coerce and manipulate and threaten people. Those who call themselves followers of Jesus have used this notion of the fear of God in a way to get people to do what they want them to do. T-shirts seem an unlikely example, but in fact, there is a website um, that sells Fear God t-shirts promoting shirt evangelism. Let me just read you a couple of what these t-shirts say. One says, Jesus is coming back, and this time no one is going to cross him. Fear God. Or, he ain't coming back to preach. Fear God. This one, fine. Don't keep God's commandments. Just don't come crying to me when you end up flat uh, flat on your face like Goliath. Fear God. The website states that the Fear God line of shirts contains bold scriptural truths. You won't be able to wear one of these shirts without telling someone about Jesus. Whether or not you subscribe to such a view, the idea of the fear of the Lord troubles many people. Consider, for example, how do we reconcile the fear of the Lord with the God of grace who calms our fears and delivers us from evil. We are told not to fear precisely because God is with us. In Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Or what about from 1 John 4? There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. It would seem that on the one hand, God promises to calm our fears of worldly dangers, while at the same time urging us to fear God. Consider what Moses told the Israelites. This is in Exodus 20.20. Do not be afraid. Okay, there's that familiar command. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And this is what we read in our text today. If you still have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 10. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What we hear 
perhaps, is that we should not fear lesser earthly fears because there's something even bigger that you should be afraid of, and that's God himself. But wait a minute, does it make sense to speak of God as someone who threatens the things that we love? Are we meant to fear God in that way? One way that people have resolved this, this idea of the fear of God is to say, well, we should, rather than saying the fear of the Lord, we should say reverence for God. And there, there we don't deal with the fear thing. But this leaves far too much out. The fear of the Lord is our proper response to God. One writer puts it this way. Fear is the unmistakable feeling in our bodies, in our stomachs, in our scalp, when we run up hard against the power of God. From a biblical perspective, there is nothing neurotic about fearing God. Let me read that again. From a biblical perspective, there is nothing neurotic about fearing God. The neurotic thing is not to be afraid or to be afraid of the wrong thing. That is why God chooses to be known to us so that we may stop being afraid of the wrong thing. When God is fully revealed to us and we get it, then we experience the conversion of our fear. What this means in part is that God wants us to turn our fear away from worldly objects that only manipulate, control, and coerce us and to redirect our fear to God whose power does not threaten our true good but it, in fact, sustains us. This makes sense when you consider that God spoke and the world came into being, that God breathed into Adam the breath of life, that among the many miraculous things God did is he opened the Red Sea to deliver his people. If we read about what God has done, if we experience God's power in our life, If we are not gripped deeply by the chasm between God and ourselves, then something is profoundly wrong. Because I cannot speak and a world come into being. I cannot cause the Red Sea to be open. I cannot breathe into someone the breath of life. The fear of the Lord is the deeply sane recognition that we are not God. You might say, okay, but let's go back to the love aspect. You started out speaking of fear being born of love. How does this work into the fear of the Lord? Again, to refer to Aquinas, he spoke of two kinds of fear. Servile fear, that is the fear of a servant who wants to make sure that he or she pleases the master, otherwise he or she might be punished by the master. The second kind of love is filial love, a fear that is based in love and affection. See, in the second view, God is not viewed as a judge, but as a father. Not a threaten, threatening judge, but a loving father. And because we love God, please hear this, because we love God, we should fear anything that would threaten our relationship with him. The fear of the Lord has to do with a proper desire not to be separated from God. Years ago, when I preached through the book of Job, and I imagined that one day I would write 
a book on Job, and this would be the, t- the title of the book would come from this. It's from Job chapter 3. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. And most people say, oh, that's because Job lost his children. He lost all his animals. He lost all his possessions. He lost his health. No, that's not what he feared. What he feared was he thought he had lost God. The God he had been worshiping his whole life suddenly turned out to be something he did not recognize. And what he feared had, had happened in his life. If we are to have the fear of the Lord, we are to have the fear that something might, in fact, come between us and God and destroy or harm that relationship between us and the Creator. He is the Creator. We are the creatures. We should want there to be a genuine relationship between us and Him. And fear is that because of sin, things, in fact, might pull that apart. In Romans chapter 8, As if to answer Job, Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Understood in this way, the fear of the Lord can be seen properly as a gift of the Holy Spirit that can help us to resist evil and pursue the good. I've had several people ask me this, and and someone fairly recently, uh, he was being encouraged by his friends who were not Christians to do something that he knew to be wrong and they knew to be wrong, but their response to him was, well, you're a Christian and you believe in forgiveness, so if you do this, you can just ask God and God will forgive you. And he asked me, so, pastor, what do you think? Um, The answer is, and I told this person, in the same way that we would not want to do something that would affect our relationship with someone dear to us, we would not want to do something that would affect our relationship with God. Fear is the natural counterpart to love. And it can be a gift if it is not excessive. But let me just tell you that this is not the way that many people think today. This is contrary to conventional wisdom and popular psychology. Uh, From 2004, a popular self-help rabbi wrote, You must first abandon all thoughts that fear serves a useful purpose in your life. You must accept that fear is not only harmful but evil, not only unhelpful but deeply destructive. Fear has not a single healthy application in any area of life, period. Or, let's go to more pop culture. What about the Jedi ethic that we find in the Star Wars movies? In episode three, Anakin Skywalker has been having these dreams and premonitions that someone dear to him is going to be lost. And so he speaks to Master Yoda about this. What should he do about this? These these premonitions of pain, of suffering and death. And this is what Yoda tells him. Careful you must be when sensing the future, Anakin. The fear of loss is a path to the dark side. And then later Yoda tells him, train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. I mentioned earlier that Aquinas said that there are three paths to fearlessness. 
the lack of love, dullness of understanding, and the pride of soul. Or, if you wish, the security of detachment, the bliss of ignorance, the pursuit of invulnerability. It would seem that the rabbi's view fits into the second way to become fearless, dullness of understanding, not acknowledging that there are, in fact, dangerous things in the world and that fear does, in fact, have a purpose. If nothing else, one would think a rabbi would know something about the Old Testament and the phrase, the fear of the Lord. But what about the Jedi ethic? It displays a total lack of love, loving nothing enough to fear its loss. Here you overcome your fear through detachment. And if you know the Star Wars stories, Anakin's great sin is that he falls in love with Padme Amidala and then secretly marries her. He, in defiance of the Jedi ethic, the Jedi ethic is not to love, but not to fear. If you love, it's not put this way directly, but if you love, that leads to the dark side. What about the pursuit of invulnerability? Beyoncé uh, suggests that just as marketers have learned to make a buck off of our fears, they've also found ways to profit from fearlessness, if we could put it in quotation marks. One could debate whether or not this is, in fact, willful ignorance or recklessness disguised as courage. But is there not a pursuit of invulnerability? T-shirts that proclaim no fear, so popular among those who engage in extreme sports. What has happened in these sports, as narrated in our culture, are expressions of fearlessness, not of courage. True courage does not lack fear altogether. True courage understands the place of fear. And it does not allow fear to distract it, to divert it from doing what is right and what is good. Reckless fearlessness, on the other hand, doesn't really overcome fear. If anything, it's sort of a fascination with fear. It's sort of dabbling with fear an uncritical fascination with it. Well, I would suggest that in the same way that the idol of security or safety has provided the virtue or has made virtues out of suspicion, preemption and accumulation, so the idol of fearlessness has made virtues of the security of detachment, the bliss of ignorance and the pursuit of invulnerability. And none of these, none of these is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We are finite. We are mortal. As I said earlier, limitation and mortality are not evil. They are but the part of the shadow side of creation. As God's grace shines into our world, we see our limitation and our mortality. As followers of Jesus, we are called to love. And we are to love in a changing world. Which means there will be inevitable loss. Fear is not necessarily wrong. But we need to know what to fear, what time to fear, and to what extent we are to fear it. And the Lord willing, next week we will look at that 
what we should not fear and how we should not fear as followers of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit, fear has been a part of who we are. And generally, it seems in a bad way. And so when we read that we are not to be afraid, we are encouraged. And yet we, we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We prefer things to be one extreme or the other. To either be fearful or to be fearless. Fearless seems better than to be fearful. And yet fear is what seems to govern so much of our culture. And yet, as followers of Jesus, we need to see that we cannot embrace a culture of fear, but neither can we embrace a culture of fearlessness, because we are to love, not be detached from one another. We are to know as much as we can what is going on so that we can help those who are in need. And we are not to pursue invulnerability. We know that we are finite. We know that we are mortal. In a culture that thrives on fear, in an unhealthy and in a sinful way, may we begin to see what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be your child, to be marked by love and the fear of the Lord. I thank you for this time that we could spend together worshiping you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.